The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Please join your hearts with mine as we pray together. Father, We do ask you for your blessing on the labors of this day. These are days full of labor, and we pray that Christ may be in all of them. Give us wisdom from above for the tasks that are before us in the weeks at the end of this semester. We look to you for strength and grace, for patience and perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Our meditation on wisdom today comes from a short section of Proverbs 24 and a few verses also from Proverbs 26, beginning at chapter 24, verse 30, to the end of the chapter, and then I'll direct you over to chapter 26. And the sage says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Then Proverbs 26, beginning at verse 12, and uh, reading through verse 16. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. This is God's word. May he write this wisdom on our hearts. It seemed like this was a good time in the semester for us to reflect on what biblical wisdom has to say about the sluggard, about laziness, the one who catches up on his beauty sleep when hard work is waiting to be done. After all, we're just eight days away from that dreaded judgment day when papers are due. And beyond that, yet more judgment, last judgment, really last judgment for some of you here at least, uh, final exams. So you may envy the sluggard who takes a few moments to fold his hands to rest. After all, your eyes are bleary and your brain is fried trying to churn out words on your computer, trying to locate that perfect quote that you found two weeks ago and tucked away in a safe place, never to be found again. Yeah, okay. So a little folding of the hands to rest sounds pretty good right now. And, of course, the Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, as Psalm 103 tells us. So he knows that we need rest. In fact, he knows it better than we do. So he embedded in his ten words to Israel and to us the command that we rest one day in seven, to trust him to be our provider and so to learn to live within our limits. 
Whenever I read that fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, I, I think our Father knows us just as we know our children uh, when they're protesting bedtime. I'm not tired. I'm not sleepy. And they can't keep their eyes open, right? And they're drooping. And God says, just rest. Just be refreshed with me. Wonderful commentary on the commandment in uh, Exodus 31 and 23. You can find the verses at some point where the Lord talks about his resting and being refreshed and calling us to rest and give others rest and refreshment. So our God is no slave driver. He doesn't demand 24-7 labor from his children. He has no sympathy with the business culture of Japan, which is getting more and more publicity. It has, they have a word for death by overwork, karoshi. That's not our God. He gives his loved ones sleep. I wouldn't be surprised if he even enjoyed Westminster's spring pong. But remember the Sabbath day also has built into it six days you shall labor. I'd forgotten that part actually until many years ago when I read John Murray's classic on Christian ethics, Principles of Conduct, which started as lectures delivered up the road here a ways at Fuller in the 1950s. And he says, God calls us to rest, but he also calls us to labor. Six and one, or now under the new covenant, one and six. And these texts, the sage here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, shows us that there, it is possible to go overboard with rest, with study breaks. You need study breaks, but it's possible to go overboard. That it's possible to succumb to the temptation to avoid hard work. The slugger is wise in his own eyes. He has reasons why he needs to take a break and why he can't go out of the house. Uh, and those reasons sometimes in subtler ways appeal to us too. So there are two basically. Uh, work is hard and work is risky. Uh, and we might be tempted to avoid work for both of those reasons. Work is hard. Now we don't know whether before the fall, at least I don't, maybe our Old Testament profs do, whether Adam's muscles ached after a long day of pruning in the garden. I don't think that paints necessarily a function of the fall, but I don't know. We do know now that gardening and weeding and working and construction and cleaning, that all involves sometimes sweat and labor and, and hard work and exhaustion. So the sluggard has a plausible reason to say, I need a little break. I need a little rest. And of course, we know, you know, it's not just physical labor. That's hard. Some of you are at that point in your paper writing where you have masses of material you've turned up in research and absolutely no clue about how to form it into a cogent essay, right? It's, it's like it's all there, but it feels formless and void, like darkness resting over the deep of your mind. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. So what you need is obviously a study break, you know, 10, 15 20 minutes of video games, or half hour, an hour, or zipping over to Starbucks for a good conversation and coffee with a friend for an hour or two or whatever. Uh, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little change of pace. And it's easy for us to laugh at Israel's sage as he's, he, with Israel's sage as he's laughing at the sluggard whose farm has gone to rack and ruin, a farm that once had walls, maybe his father built the walls, planted the, the grapevines, but now it's all overcome with nettles and thorns. Um, 
He's like a water flowing downstream. He takes the line of least resistance. And of course, water has to do that because it has to obey gravity. It has to follow the course of or the line of least resistance. Shortest distance between two points between Minnesota and New Orleans is a straight line. But if you watch how the Mississippi River gets there on a map, it's anything but straight. Why? Water has to follow the course of least resistance. People are not that. We're made to go upstream sometimes. We are, we are made to do hard things. And studies at Westminster are hard. Did we tell you that when we were recruiting you? It's hard here? Hmm. If we did, you had no imagination of what this next week or two was like at that moment. It was so exciting. In 1992, a movie came out called A League of Their Own. It was fictional, but it was based on a real-life baseball league, the all-girls professional baseball league that had a great run of 11 years, 1943 to 54. In one scene of the movie, Dottie Hinson, who was the catcher and really the star of the team, decides that she's going to go with her boyfriend, Bob, back to Oregon and just drop baseball and just live a normal housewife life. And the coach, played by Tom Hanks, um, Jimmy Dugan, uh, tries to persuade her. He's, he's not really into supportive coaching. He's like a bully. But persuade her that baseball is in her bones and her heart. Uh, and she finally says, it just got too hard. And that makes him explode. He says... It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everybody would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. I think that's a great line for student recruitment. Come to Westminster. It's the hard that makes it great. It's supposed to be hard. But it's hard. It's hard. And the temptation is, when we hit the hard, to want to look for our comfort zone. Work is hard. And work is risky. So, chapter 26, the sluggard says there's a lion somewhere out there. In the marketplace, in the street, scholars debate how to translate all of that. Somewhere, he's saying, I might get mauled on my way to work, so I better not leave the house. Uh, of course, then the next step is, I better not leave my bed. So he's like, he, he's turning, tossing and turning on his bed, trying to get comfortable, like a, like a door on its hinges. A lot of movement, a lot of motion, but no progress. Doesn't go anywhere. And then finally, of course, if you stay still long enough, you don't even have enough energy to grab some food out of the dish and get it up to your mouth. You've atrophied. It's nothing there. So we chuckle at the paranoid sloth, the giant lion downtown, really. But he has a point. There's a risk to work, a risk of injury to your body, a risk of injury to your self-image. What if you put 100 hours into a paper and you get a B-? minus? Ouch, is that worth it? Line of least resistance seems less risky, less fraught with danger. Seems less risky. But of course, that's the lie. And the sage, looking beyond, showing us beyond, says it is the lie. That's the point he makes in chapter 24 when he looks at the chaos in the sluggard's farmland, and he says, now the next thing, a little sleep, a little slumber, and poverty will come on you like a robber, and want or lack like an armed man. Decades ago, I heard Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke give a lecture here in town at our congregation on this text in chapter 24. And I was glad to see, when I went over to the 
library that is New International Commentary on Proverbs, still, he still holds this, that there's something more afoot here than simply weed your garden. He says, among other things in the commentary, a vigorous, the vigorous sage, he's walking, you see, past the field of the sleeping sluggard, a hostile creation is also on the move, but it marches to attack the sluggard while he sleeps. Or he also says, verse, uh, the verse that we're thinking of here, verse 30, uh, um, I'm looking at the wrong chapter, no wonder I'm confused. Verse 30, 34, about the robber and the bandit, he says, that presents the law of entropy as an armed bandit who comes and attacks the sluggard as he lies in bed asleep. Early in the 20th century, the Irish poet William Butler Yeats wrote a poem about the bloodiness with which that century started, especially the First World War and the war in Ireland, his home country, called the Second Coming. And in one line he says, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Things fall apart. That sort of captures it, doesn't it? Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe took that, those three words, uh, for the title of his novel about the effect of European colonial aggression in Africa in the 19th century, things fall apart. But it's true. It's true around the world and true in all kinds of ways. Things fall apart. Robert Frost, New England poet, poet laureate of the U.S. some decades ago, wrote a poem called Mending Wall. Uh, in which he's describing how he and his neighbor have to go every year and put the stones back up on the wall that separates Frost's apple trees from the neighbor's pine trees. Frost doesn't know why they have to do this, because he says, my apples are not going to go over there and steal their pine cones or vice versa. But the neighbor says, good fences make good neighbors, so we're going to do that. Uh, Frost begins by saying, something there is that doesn't love a wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. And he sort of puzzles on the fact that somehow every year some of those rocks fall off the wall and have to be replaced. Now, he doesn't like walls either, that's the point, but the wall here is a wall of protection that tends to fall apart if there's nobody caring for it. It's because things have gone to ruin because of neglect. There's something, well, I'm, not, I'm going to get too literary on you. The witches in Shakespeare's the Scottish play, play Macbeth, when they see Macbeth, the king killer coming, say, something wicked this way comes, right? Something wicked this way comes. The world, and that's what Walke was saying, there's something hostile to order and humanity let loose in the world, and the slugger doesn't realize it. Thorns and nettles, says the sage. That's what's going on kind of reminds us of what God said to Adam, that uh, because Adam had rebelled against the great king, now creation was going to rebel against Adam, the little king, and he's going to toil and sweat, and instead of the fruit and the, create, and, and, and the harvest that he's longing for, or at least along with it, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." I was hoping that those were the same Hebrew words as we find in Proverbs 24. No, they're completely different words. But the echo, I think, is still there of the scene because we're in rebellion against God. Things are hard and things are risky. And seems that the sage 
sees that curse on the earth for Adam's sake at work in the slugger's field. And Walke suggested, and I think he's right, that it's much, about much more than weeding your garden. Walke says it's because of the, of the curse, ultimately, that when you don't root out the weeds of self-centered rebellion in your, from your son's hearts in every way you can by discipline, that the fruit in time will be thorns and nettles in their lives. Sons left undisciplined will run amok. Nations governed by fools will implode. It's dangerous. That's why labor's hard and that's why labor's risky. That's why our bodies and brains shut down after only 24 or 48 or 72 hours of sleeplessness. Some of you are frustrated with that. You're going to try to keep yourself awake with caffeine. Where do you find the heart stamina, the soul stamina, the mental stamina too, yes, to pursue the line of most resistance, getting those papers done, studying hard for those finals, when there's something in you whispering, a little sleep, a little slumber, a video came or two, where do you find it? You know what I'm going to say. You've got to go to the second Adam, right? You've got to go to Jesus. You've got to go to the true head of the new humanity who was offered the way of least resistance, the easy way. Isn't that at least in part what the temptations in the wilderness immediately after his baptism are about? His stomach is growling, maybe worse than that. It may be in pain, 40 days of lack of food, and the tempter comes, that salesman of the easy way. And he says, hey, I heard, I heard the voice. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You can do a messianic magic trick. Turn the stones to bread. Shazam, you're good to go. Does it work? And then he goes deeper. I heard, I, I think, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm pretty sure. I heard the father say to you, this is my son. And I know Psalm 2. That's exactly what God says to the Messiah. This, you are my son. And I know what he says next from that psalm too. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. That's what God promised. Tell you what, I can do that for you. I can do that for you. Luke, well, Matthew or Luke, but I have it here from Luke. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then worship me, it will all be yours. The line of least resistance. A little sleep, a little slumber. We don't know whether Satan knew the trajectory that the Son of God knew he was going to have to take to get to that point of universal kingship, to the point where he could say to his disciples after his resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We don't know. But we can imagine at least that Jesus knew. This way, the easy way. Just worship me, I'll give them all to you. The other way, the line of most resistance, the trajectory to the cross. His labor 
was to do the heavy lifting, the heaviest lifting, your guilt and mine, on his shoulders, on his heart, carried up the hill to Golgotha, Skull Hill, the line of most resistance, resistance we can't even begin to imagine. And he is a high priest, tested in every point as we are, without sin, unlike us, without sin, and able to help us in our time of need. So he's the one that can give you the strength to keep doing the hard thing when there's something else in you that wants to do something else. Now, by all means, take a break from time to time. Get, a, get some rest, maybe even get in a, one more quick game of ping pong. One, one more game of ping pong, okay? Don't ignore your wife or your husband. Don't ignore your children. By all means, be refreshed with your God on his Sabbath. But don't give in to the temptation that snares sluggards, the temptation to run from the hard because it's hard, to fixate on your weariness or your fear of failure and run away to Oregon or wherever your comfort zone may be. Actually, at another point, Walke talks about the sluggard's preference for his comfort zone. So we're not just talking about snoozing a long time, but whatever is comfortable. Jesus did the hard labor for you, and he's entered his Sabbath rest in resurrection life and power. And because of his resurrection, the Apostle Paul says, this is what that means for you in the labors before you in this day. Climax of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go in the strength of his life-giving spirit. Get back to work. Let's pray. Father, make us wise. Make us wise and give us courage and give us stamina at this moment to uh, fulfill our calling as stewards of the time and minds and strength that you have entrusted to us for your glory. Protect us from being sluggards. Also protect us from being workaholics, driven by a desire for our own reputation. But make us at this point really disciplined for your glory. And bless my brothers and sisters well as they labor hard as this semester comes to an end, that they might acquit themselves well as those who handled the word rightly, not needing to be ashamed. Thank you that Jesus did not take the easy way offered to him by the tempter, but took the hardest way for our sake and has entered into his glory and is reigning over the nations and extending his, his reign and his rule through the gospel and the power of his spirit. And it's reached us even here. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.